Well, I will confess it is difficult to jump right back into this highly academic, difficult studies that we're going through as we walk through the Bible after such a tragic weekend. I was thinking after the shootings last night and this morning what to say today, and I'm reminded of the words of Peter in John 6. Where else have we to go for words of hope but this book? And so ultimately we, we live in a day and a time and a state that is grieving this morning. We turn to this book because we're convinced this is the only place to go to find hope. It's the only place to go to find meaning and significance and peace when you face such violence and hatred. And so this morning we're going to con- continue this study from cover to cover all the way through the story of the Bible. We're covering the entirety of Scripture in three weeks. So last week we introduced this study. We covered the first three chapters. We're going to continue today through the middle of Scripture. I just want to kind of review for you for a moment where we are. There's handouts again. If, if you're looking for handouts, they, they should be either under the, the end of the rows or there's people going around. You can just raise your hand and they'll bring you a handout to fill out. As we walk through, we'll be covering a lot of ground this morning. So the handout will help you to follow along. Last week, we started with our first handout. And you might remember in this handout, I gave you the, the whole story of the Bible in nine words or nine chapters. If you can remember these nine words, you've got the whole story of the Bible. So last week, we began with what we might call the botched beginning. It began with wonderful news that there is a creator in heaven who loves us so much that he created this beautiful world for us. It's a gift to humanity made in his image to rule his world on his behalf. So at the end of the first chapter, creation, everything is very good. It is perfect. But then the wheels come off because we enter the second chapter, revolt, where Adam and Eve, God's image bearers, choose sin. They choose pride. They, they want to be God instead of submitting to God. And as a result, they inherit death. Death enters the human experience in all of its forms. And creation is broken and we are broken. We fall into sin and it's, it's horrible news. But even in the midst of that incredible tragedy, God promises deliverance. The first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God says that a a male descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, our enemy Satan, once and for all. And and so we now, now know that a male descendant of Eve will be our deliverer who will set us free from the bondage of sin. And, and that led us into the third chapter of the story where God's plan for redemption focuses on a particular family, the family of Abraham. So God chooses Abraham and makes an incredible covenant with him, the Abrahamic covenant. God promises him land and seed, meaning many descendants and blessings. And and the greatest promise of all, through this one family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so now we know that it's not just any descendant of Eve, it's a descendant of Abraham who will bring salvation to us and deliver us from the evil ones. So 
now we, we know that this family, this promised family, is a family that the deliverer will come from. And so for the rest of the book of Genesis, you meet members of this family of promise. So let me just fill in for you for a moment kind of the timeline of, of the Bible. We meet Abraham around 2166 BC, so a little over 4,000 years ago. And with him, we begin an era of scripture we call the era of the patriarchs, which is Genesis 12 to the end of the book of Genesis. So it's Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons who make up the 12 nation or the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And then at the end of the age of the patriarchs, famine settles upon the land. And so God sends this family to Egypt. So that's around 1876 BC. The nation is sent to Egypt and at first things are wonderful in Egypt. They are blessed, they're prosperous, but after a while the Egyptians get tired of them and and the Egyptians oppress the Israelites and enslave them and even murder many of them. And so Israel enters into a period of, of great oppression and they begin to cry out for deliverance and that's where our story will pick up this morning as we enter what we call the messy middle of the Bible. So that's everything from the beginning of Exodus to the end of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. So I have a a lot of ground to cover this morning. The messy middle, it's kind of like the... uh, the Empire Strikes Back part of the Star Wars. It's, it's pretty dark. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in this portion of scripture from Exodus to Malachi. And yet even in the midst of all of that bad news, God is working. God is preparing a way for his Messiah who will come next week. But, but this week it's all messiness. So let's jump into the messy middle with our next chapter. Chapter 4, our fourth key word to remember in the story of the Bible, the law. So turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. So as you're turning there, let me just remind you for a moment. With the Abrahamic covenant, the family of Abraham receives an amazing promise. It's wonderful news. But there's one huge and glaring deficiency with the Abrahamic covenant. One big thing it's lacking. And that is a way to access the blessings. The Abrahamic covenant makes amazing promises to the family of Abraham, but it does not tell them what to do to cash in on those blessings in their lifetime. So think about it this way. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were promised all that land that we looked at last week. Did they own any of that land in their lifetime? No. No, they did not. Why? Because they sinned? No, simply because God had not yet provided a method for the family of Abraham to cash in on all the blessings he had made to them, that he had promised to them. So I like to think that when you think about the, the family of Abraham in the book of Genesis, it's kind of like the child who has been left a million dollar trust fund that he can access when he turns 21. Well, before he's 21, what does he have to do to get some of that money? 
Nothing. There's no way. There's no possibility. There's no, there's no method to cash in on all that money that legally belongs to you. Well, that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They have all these amazing promises in the bank, but they have no way to access them. No method to cash in on God's blessings in this lifetime. That's why after Genesis, the family of Abraham, where are they? They're in Egypt and they're slaves because they had sinned. No, they hadn't done anything wrong. They were slaves because they did not yet have a method or a way to cash in on all of those Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. That's what God is going to fix in this chapter of the story. God is going to give the next covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But first God sends his deliverer. He sends Moses to Egypt around 1446 BC is the date we would throw out. Uh, God sends Moses to deliver the Israelites and God does some amazing things in Egypt, 10 plagues and then parts the Red Sea to lead the Israelites out of Egypt victoriously. And then God sends them south to Mount Sinai where he shows up and gives them the next covenant. We call it the Mosaic covenant or the law and it takes up most of Exodus through Deuteronomy I'm just going to read you a little bit of an excerpt to give you a flavor for how the law works so if you're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 28 let's start in verse 1 this is Moses speaking so he is giving the Israelites the law now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God Being careful to do all of his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Well, this is exactly what they were wanting. Moses is telling them, just follow these laws, these commands I'm giving you. And the result will be, you will be blessed now. All of the promises God made to your ancestors, they will come into your life right now. You will be amazingly blessed. But there's a flip side to this coin. Look down at verse 15. But... It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statues with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of the herd and the young of your flock. So now they know exactly what they need to do to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and escape the curses. And so when you boil it all down, what is the Mosaic covenant law? It is the rules that Israel had to follow to enjoy Abrahamic covenant blessings in their lifetime. So the law fixes that one glaring deficiency in the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Israelites know exactly what they need to do today to cash in on all of those amazing promises God made to Abraham. Follow the rules. All those rules from Exodus to Deuteronomy and you will be blessed in this lifetime. Disobey those rules and you will miss out on all of those blessings. Now it's really important at this point to clarify and make sure we are exactly on the same page here. 
All of these rules in the law, they were about how to enjoy God's blessings in this lifetime. They were not at all about heaven or hell. The law has never been about salvation. Why? Because we talked about this last week. Salvation from hell has always been by faith alone. Salvation has always been by faith alone from Adam to whoever the last person born will be. The law never had anything to do with how you go to heaven. That's all about faith. It's about Jesus dying for us. That's what heaven and eternal life are about. The law is not about that. The law for the Jews was about this life. How in this life do you enjoy these amazing promises God has made to your family? You've got to follow the rules. You keep the rules and God's blessings will come in this lifetime. That's how it worked for the Jewish people. And so God gave them all of these rules so that they would be able to cash in on these blessings. And, and these rules, they covered every part of life for the nation of Israel. It's, it's an incredible number of rules. You can group them into kind of three categories. The first are civil laws. Laws that, that constituted Israel as its own nation. The Mosaic law worked like a constitution for Israel. It made them a distinct nation. It laid out for them their, their legal code, their criminal justice system, their immigration law, their economic policies. Here's one example of an economic rule. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land or in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. That's a rule for businesses, how they needed to pay their workers. There's even building codes in the Mosaic law. It regulated everything about the nation. Okay, so there's all these civil laws. Second, there's ceremonial laws in the Mosaic covenant. They're the rules about how you practice Judaism their particular religion. So God spelled out Judaism in detail, all the ceremonies, how priests were to do their job, what the temple was to be built like, how the sacrificial system was to work. Here is an example. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar to one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. The ceremonial laws spelled out exactly how Judaism was to be practiced. Now there's some parts of the ceremonial laws that seem a little bit weird to us. Like in the ceremonial laws, God forbids them making clothes out of two different kinds of fabrics. You can't weave two different kinds of fabrics together. He forbids them eating bacon. He forbids them intermarrying with anybody who's not a Jew. Why? Is God a stickler? Does God hate bacon? No to any of that. The reason for these ceremonial laws was quite simple. God wanted the Israelites to look and act differently than the rest of the world. So the rest of the world would ask themselves, what's going on with these guys? So God wanted wanted the rest of the world to be curious about the Jews so that they could learn about their God and about their religion. They would be attracted to the Jewish people because the Jewish people were different than every other nation on earth. So these ceremonial laws set the Jews apart. And then there was a third and most important part of the Mosaic law, and that's the moral laws. 
God spelled out exactly how they were to behave towards him and towards one another. And, and all of these moral laws, of which there are a ton, are summarized in the very famous Ten Commandments. So it is important. Ten Commandments is not the law, it's the summary of just the moral laws. So you've probably read these before. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father, your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet. So 10 commandments, but just a summary of all of the moral law. So when you look at the law of Moses, one of the first things that people ask is, are we still under it? Is the Mosaic law for us? Well, let me ask you honestly, how many of you have at some point in your life eaten bacon? I I hope everyone, (laughs) if you haven't, you, you have an assignment. You need to go try that stuff. It's pretty good, I think. It's okay that we raised our hands. Why? Because we're not Israel. The Mosaic law is not for us. All of this law that God gave in the Mosaic covenant, it's not for us because we are the church. We are a different people of God. The Mosaic law was only for Israel before the cross. Next week we'll talk about what Jesus did on the cross and how he satisfied and set aside the Mosaic law. No one is under the Mosaic law anymore. It's been completely satisfied. So we are not under this law. This was for Israel. It was not for us. It was for Israel. And one of the important things to know about the Mosaic law that a lot of us get confused about is that when God gave the Israelites the Mosaic law, it was actually a gift. A lot of us living in this age, the church age, we tend to think about the law as kind of a negative thing. We think about it contrasted to grace. Grace is good, which it is. The law is bad. No, actually, grace is good, but so is the law. The law was a very good thing. It was a gift from God because it showed the Israelites exactly what they had to do on any given day to enjoy God's blessings in this life. It was a gift of revelation to them, a gift of rules so that Israel could follow these rules and be blessed. Every day for an Israelite, after God revealed the law, they had a choice, a very straightforward choice. Do I obey and get blessed or do I disobey and get cursed? Now, unfortunately, if you've read your Old Testament, you know which side of the equation they spent most of their time on. Unfortunately, they chose disobedience most of the time. Why? Well, because it's not enough just to know what you should do. You have to want to do it. Because ultimately, humans do what humans want to do. And the law didn't fix that problem. That's the deficiency of the law. The one big thing the law lacked. It told them what to do, but it didn't give them the desire to do it. It didn't place this desire inside of them. And so they're going to spend most of the Old Testament disobeying. And that didn't surprise God. God lamented that. He knew that that was going to happen. God himself says in Deuteronomy 5, Oh, that they had such a heart in them. Heart in Hebrew, it means desire. God is, is lamenting. Oh, that they had a desire in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God wishes that they had that desire, but the law doesn't give that to them. All the law does is tell them what they should do. It doesn't give them the desire to do it. And so they struggle. They struggle to obey. 
And so the rest of the Old Testament, in a sense, it, it now raises a question. Who will come? What Israelite, what descendant of Abraham will finally come who will completely obey the law and receive all of the promised blessings? And so the Old Testament, in a sense, from this point on, it's a waiting game. Who is finally going to show up that actually wants to obey the law? Unfortunately, it's not Moses. He, he blows it. He murdered a guy. And then later he blows it again. He, he struggled just like everybody. It's not his contemporaries. That first generation of Israelites, they do poorly. And so God curses them to wander the wilderness. Not because they're lost, but because they were disobedient. After the wilderness generation, the next generation does better under Joshua. But only for a little while, the next generation forgets God. And we enter one of the darkest periods of scripture called the Judges. Period of the Judges is just a cycle. Over and over again, the nation of Israel chooses disobedience and idolatry. God brings the curse upon them just as he promised. They repent and cry out for deliverance. God delivers them through a judge and then they immediately forget and go back into sin. It's incredibly dark. So that's the the end of, of this chapter. Chapter four, the law. It paves the way for the next chapter. Chapter five, the chapter of the king. So in the midst of all of the horror of the judges, such a dark period, the nation of Israel begins to cry out for a king. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to enter this period of the kings. The Israelites cry out for a king to lead them. It's not a very nice thing to ask God because basically you're saying to God, God, you're not enough. We're not going to follow you. We want a human king like every other nation has so that we can be like every other nation. And it's kind of an insult to God. And so God gives them first a king after their own heart. God says, okay, I'm not enough for you. You want a king. I will give you the kind of king you want. And that is Saul. Saul was a man after their own heart. Uh, Literally what it means is he was the kind of guy they desired. Remember, that's what heart means to be their king. He was very tall. He was broad shouldered. He stood above everybody else. They said, man, this is a powerful man. This is what we want. All other nations will be afraid of him. Unfortunately, Saul's pride led to his downfall. So he failed and God replaced him with a second king from a different family. This was a man after God's own heart. That's the key thing about David is he's a man after God's own heart, which means that David desired what God desired. David put God's desires first in his life. And nowhere is that more clear than in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's read a chunk of this. We'll start at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7. This is about David. Now it came about when the king, that is David, lived in his house, meaning his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So just to fill you in, what David is saying is, God, I... I live in a palace. I live in this beautiful mansion that you've given me. But God, you live in a tent. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a fancy tent. Let's give them credit. We call it the tabernacle, like multi-layered tent with lots of pretty stuff inside. But it's still a tent. 
And, and that begins to bother David. Here I am in a palace. God is being worshipped in a tent. That doesn't seem right because God is so great. I want to build him a beautiful temple. So this is David worshipping God. Saying, God, I want you to be glorified and praised because you are worthy. Let's see how the story plays out. Verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build a house to, for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. That they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is actually a really famous passage in the Bible. If you've never read it, it's worth, it's worth noting, it's worth highlighting. This is where God makes this next grand covenant. With David, we call it the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is like the Abrahamic covenant. It's a simple promise. There's no rules here. There's no law you have to follow. It's just a promise that God freely makes with David. And it's an interesting promise. It's ironic. So remember, David said, God, I want to build you a house. God said, no, you're not going to do that. It's, it's because David was a, a man of war. God had used him to conquer Israel's enemies. God didn't want a man of war building his temple. So, so God used David's son Solomon to build the temple. But God is honored by David's worship. So God says, I'm going to turn the tables. Instead of you building a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. And that's what the promise is about. God promises David a house, which, which figuratively it means descendants. David, your family is going to live forever. You will always have descendants. Your family's never going to die out. And not only am I going to give you descendants, I'm going to give you the throne. David, the throne of Israel belongs to your family forever. And finally, David, I'm going to give you a kingdom to rule. You will always have a kingdom to rule over. And so this Davidic covenant, it's an amazing promise to David, but it has implications for the whole nation because God says, when I, when I make you this strong king, I'm going to plant the nation of Israel in a peaceful place, a place where they won't be troubled by their neighbors anymore. They will have success. They will be blessed. And so this is a promise of blessing to the whole nation. And, and just like the Abrahamic covenant, it's irrevocable. 
God says, even if your sons blow it, I won't take this covenant from them. It will always belong to them. It will never be taken away. However, there is one issue with this covenant, one problem, one deficiency. This covenant comes after the Mosaic covenant. And so just like the Abrahamic covenant, if a particular generation of David's descendants wants to cash in on this blessing in their lifetime, what do they have to do? They have to obey the law. You have to obey the law to enjoy the blessings in this lifetime. So I like to, I like to put it this way. Kind of imagine it this way. You're, in, you're an Israelite. You're living in this portion of the Old Testament, the bulk of the Old Testament. You have these two amazing promises up here that belong to you. You have the Abrahamic covenant and all that it promises. It's yours. You have the Davidic covenant and all that it promises. It's yours. But to get either of them in your lifetime, what do you have to do? You have to go through the Mosaic law. You have to go through the law. You have to obey the law to enjoy, to cash in on either of these blessings. Unfortunately, David's descendants and David himself struggled to do that. So when we look at, at David, David begins well. And you could probably say that Second Samuel 7 is the highlight of his life. That's the peak. That's when he's doing his best. It goes downhill from there. You, you probably know the story. David commits adultery and then to cover it up he commits murder. And, and it's awful. So now we know, David, you're, you are not the promised son of Eve who's a son of Abraham, who now would perfectly obey and bring us the covenants. No, you have your own sin to deal with. And, and what's interesting as we look at David is his sin is so severe, adultery and murder, and yet God doesn't take the throne from him, but took it from Saul. And I don't know if you guys have ever read Saul's story. Do you happen to know what was the sin that Saul committed that was kind of the, the, the final straw for God? God takes the throne from Saul. All that Saul actually did was offer a sacrifice to God that he technically wasn't supposed to. That's it. All that Saul did is he offered a sacrifice to God that Samuel the prophet was supposed to offer because Samuel wasn't there yet and Saul was concerned. And so Saul offered it and God takes the throne away. And and you look at that and you say, God, that seems like such a small sin. And yet Saul lost the throne. David commits adultery and murder and doesn't lose the throne. Why? Well, you have to look at how each man responded because both of them were caught in their sin. Both of them were found out. Here is how Saul responds when his sin is discovered. Samuel the prophet said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What what is that? That is an excuse. That is a very well-crafted excuse. Basically, Saul is saying, Samuel, I waited, but you were running late. And all of our countrymen, they were getting afraid, and they were running away, and we can't win this war against the Philistines if they all run away. So I did the only thing I could do. I forced myself to offer the sacrifice. He's making excuses. That's why he lost the throne. Look at what David does. 
So David's sin is found out. Here's how he responds. Psalm 51. David says, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There's no excuses there, there's just confession. David is saying, God, you are right. I am wrong. There is no excuse for this. I have sinned. I've done the wrong thing. Please, God, be gracious to me. And God is. And there's a lesson there for all of us, not just for kings. This is for every person. It's not about the gravity of our sin. It's about our response to conviction. So often we try to Weight sins. Try to like rank. Who's the worst sinner? What sin is worse than some other sin? That's not how God sees it. It's not about the weight or rank or gravity of your particular sin. It's about how you respond when God confronts you about that sin. If you respond in humility like David and say, God, you are right. This is inexcusable. God honors that. If you make excuses and say, God, this is no big deal. Come on, really? God will not honor that. It's not about the gravity of our sin. It's about how we respond when we're convicted. David responded well, so God did not take the throne. However, because of David's sin, he could not be this promised son of Eve who would deliver the human race from our enemy. Couldn't be David. Sadly, it could also not be his son Solomon. If you know the story of Solomon, boy, it really begins on a good note. Solomon asks God for wisdom. He builds this beautiful temple for God. Things seem to be really going well. Could Solomon finally be the the son of Eve who delivers us? Well, no, because Solomon falls to lust that leads him to idolatry. And it's so evil and so awful that God comes and says, I'm taking most of the kingdom from you, but, but not from you. I'll wait till your son comes and and then I will bring discipline for Solomon's sin. And so under Solomon's sin, Rehoboam, division happens. 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel is split. And what we call Israel now only applies to the top 10 tribes, the northern 10 tribes. They go off on their own way. The south, Judah and Benjamin, they stay together as the new nation of Judah. When you look at it, most of the kings from this point on are awful. All the kings in the north are bad and idolatrous and wicked. Most of the kings of the south are bad and idolatrous and wicked. And because the nation just keeps descending into greater and greater sin, just as he promised in the law, God brings discipline, the discipline of exile. And so a a conquering nation, Assyria, or really an empire, comes to the north and takes them away in 722 BC, empties the land. The Jews of the north are scattered. And then a little bit later, Babylon comes and wipes out the south and takes them away in exile. And so as this chapter, chapter 5, the chapter of the king ends, Israel is in exile. It is dark. It seems hopeless. Their sin has crushed them. I mean, it really is. It's, it's tragic to look. God gave them everything they needed. He, all these blessings plus rules to follow. Here it is, just do it, and you get all this good stuff, and yet they failed time and time again. 
And now as this chapter closes, they are experiencing the full brunt of the consequence, the curse. They're off in exile. And yet in the midst of that darkness, God doesn't give up on them. He makes an incredible promise. That is what our sixth chapter is about. So now we move into the the chapter we call hope. This is where God is going to give the nation hope by promising a new covenant. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. So if you'll recall the problem with the law, the Mosaic covenant, was it didn't give the Israelites a desire to obey, told them what to do, didn't make them want to do it. So they kept choosing to disobey. God promises to fix that in a new and better covenant. And so Jeremiah 31, this is written around 600 BC. So we're right in the period of the exile. Look starting in verse 31. So pretty easy, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Okay, so 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That's the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. But this is the covenant, this new covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. Notice how significant, on their heart. Where the Mosaic covenant was deficient, it didn't touch our hearts, it didn't give us the desire. This new covenant will. It will write the actual laws of God on our hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what God is promising here is that a day is coming when that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, will be replaced. It will be set aside. It will be finished. God will replace it with this new and better covenant. So it's important to understand the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant never active at the same time. The new covenant completely replaces the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And this new covenant is better in every way. I mean, look at what it promises. It promises forgiveness for all of their sins under the old covenant. All those sins will be washed away. And it promises a a new heart. They will actually want to obey God. God fleshes out those promises in a companion passage in the book of Ezekiel. I'll just put it on the screen for you. Ezekiel 36. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands of your exile and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in in the land that I gave your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. 
These are incredible promises that God is making to the nation of Israel. Just to give you a a list here, there's amazing spiritual promises. God is promising forgiveness of all their sins, a new heart so they'll actually have the desire to obey. And the greatest of all, God will put his own spirit in them. The Holy Spirit himself will come to live inside his people. So incredible spiritual promises, but also amazing physical promises. Just in the passage we read, God promised Israel and Judah will be reunited. They'll no longer be divided. They'll be returned to their land. The exile will be over. They will be prosperous. They will have fertility and peace and safety. So the new covenant is amazing. It is incredible promises to the nation of Israel. In in the new covenant, Israel is receiving everything they've been hoping for. Kind of think about it. Remember all the other three covenants that we've studied. At the end of each of those covenants, I told you there was a problem. There was something lacking. There's not in the new covenant. The new covenant is the one where there's absolutely nothing lacking. There's no hole in it. There's nothing else that they need. It is the covenant by which all of God's promises will be fulfilled. The new covenant is how God is going to fulfill everything he has ever promised to Israel. So when you think about the new covenant and and all that it offers, I think the simplest way to think about the new covenant in light of this story of the Bible that we're talking about over these three weeks, the new covenant is ultimately what gets humanity back to the garden. That's what this is about. We lost the garden after chapter one. Very quickly. This garden where humanity walked with God in the cool of the day, Where humanity did not know things like sin and evil and shame and fear. All of that is coming again. And it's the new covenant that makes it possible. It's a new covenant that gets us back to the beauty and wonder of the garden. And so the new covenant is amazing. It is wonderful. It is what we want. However, there is something different about the new covenant than the other covenants God gave. And that's that when God promises a new covenant, it doesn't begin in that instant. All the others did. When God made the promise to Abraham, it began. When God made the promise to Moses, it began. When God made the promise to David, it began. They began instantly, not the new covenant. In the passages that we read, this isn't the beginning of the new covenant. It's just the promise of it. God is saying, a day is coming when I give it to you, but it's not here yet. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, this is key to remember, for the rest of the Old Testament, there's no new covenant. So what covenant are the Israelites under for the rest of the Old Testament? They're still under the law. They're still under the Mosaic Covenant. That is the only way throughout the entire Old Testament for them to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic or Davidic covenants in their lifetime. They must obey the law. And that's actually where the Old Testament ends. God tells them, hey guys, I've promised something new in the future. It's not here yet. So in the meantime, you still got to obey the law. So here is the last chapter of the Old Testament. So literally the last page before you turn to Matthew and start the New Testament, this is what it reads. Malachi chapter four, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked. 
Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Period. That's the end of the Old Testament. It's more than a little ironic that the actual, literal, last word of the Old Testament is curse. Because that's most of it. That's what Israel experienced most of the time. But God is saying a new day is coming. A new day is coming. We call it the day of the Lord. The day when God sends his Messiah. This new and better King David. This son of Eve who's a son of Abraham. Who's a son of David who perfectly obeys the law. A new day is coming. He will come and on that day he's going to do two things. He's going to destroy the wicked. And he's going to deliver the righteous. And according to Malachi 4. What do you have to do to make sure you're part of the group that gets deliverance? Obey the law. You've got to remember the law of Moses. When the king shows up, you've got to be obeying the law to receive the blessings just as God had promised. And so that is the note with which the Old Testament ends, and yet Israel doesn't obey it. They continue to give in to sin, and so generation after generation of Israelites experiences the curse. More and more they experience Gentile nations and empires coming and conquering them. It's a really dark time. Now, we know where this story is going. We know that here as the Old Testament ends, Israel's looking for this promised son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of David, who would perfectly obey the law and bring the new covenant. We know him, right? That's Jesus. That's what everything is pointing to. The problem for us is that we take it for granted that we already know Jesus. It's so hard for us to even imagine what it was like for them. So we're going to celebrate communion here in a moment. And, and as those who are preparing it go back to prepare communion, we're going to do something a little different this morning, I hope. It's, it's challenging to do. Usually when we celebrate communion, what we do is we spend time giving thanks for what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, which is good. That's exactly what you want to do. I'm going to challenge you a little differently this morning. I want you to take this time and I want you to imagine what would life have been like If I lived during the messy middle of scripture, what would life be like if I did not know the surprising, shocking conclusion of this story? I mean, because you know that like this story is going in a crazy direction. The creator from all the way back in chapter one, he's going to take on flesh and he's going to suffer and die for us to fix what we broke in Genesis three. That's crazy. Who would have ever imagined that? Certainly none of the Israelites. None of the Israelites saw this coming. So I want you to take some time to imagine what it was like to live in the messy middle when all you see is sin and darkness and curse upon you and you're you're hoping, God, please send someone to fix this, but you don't know who it's going to be. You don't know what God is going to do. I want you to take some time and imagine what it was like as the elements are passed. Men, you can come forward. I want you to think about what it was like so that you can give thanks that you live in a better age. You live after the cross. You know what they didn't know. You know Jesus. And so let's take this time to imagine being in their shoes and give thanks that we live in this better age.
The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we celebrate what we just did, that in drinking that cup, that is the new covenant in your blood, by shedding your blood on the cross for our sins, you set aside the Mosaic covenant and brought this new and better covenant that gives us hope and peace and forgiveness and power, and we praise you for that, Jesus. We thank you that unlike those living during the messy middle, we know you, we know that you would come and do the unthinkable, that the creator of the universe, who is almighty and sovereign and wonderful, would become one of us and take our place on the cross and die to fix what we broke and then rise from the dead to conquer our enemy for us. You, out of love, would do all that we couldn't do to save us. We thank you for that, Jesus. We, we thank you for that that how that gives us peace and and hope even on a weekend that's been so full of, of violence and tragedy and darkness we thank you that you have have exemplified love that you have acted in such incredible grace we thank you that we have good news to share with a world that is grieving this morning we thank you that we can tell them that there is hope that there is peace and forgiveness and love that can transcend any hatred and any violence. We thank you for the incredible good news that we have in Jesus and we pray, help us God to be faithful to tell our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates the good news about Jesus, your son. Help us to share hope with them on this seemingly hopeless week. We pray that the good news of Jesus might shine afresh in in the hearts of men and women that we do life with who don't yet know him. We pray, Lord Jesus, help us to be faithful to you for you are worthy. You are the one that the whole story is about. We praise you and we thank you for your faithfulness to come and die and rise for us. In your name and for your glory of which you are worthy, we pray. Amen. I'll see you guys next week as we finish the story.